0: The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke, and this week we're at the heart of the Freeze Art Fair. As I record this, it's the calm before the storm of the second VIP day, and from where I'm sitting, I can see David Sverner's stand, where we know that on the first VIP day yesterday, among other sales, were an Oscar Mario painting for $400,000, and a work by Kerry James Marshall, which sold for $3.8 million to an American museum. That's just one of more than 160 galleries from across the world in the tent at this end of Regent's Park and across the park at Freeze Masters there are another 130 stands. Later in this bumper edition of the podcast we have three artist interviews showing that galleries pull out all the stops to present some of the world's biggest artists to coincide with the fair. We talk to Mark Bradford at Hauser & Worth, to Ai Weiwei at Listen Gallery and to Peter Doig at Michael Werner Gallery. I also talk to Hetty Judah whose book Art London looks at the presence of art across the city. But first, as with every year at Freeze, I'm going to talk to Melanie Gurlis, an editor-at-large for the Art Newspaper and columnist for the Financial Times, about this year's fair and the market here in London as another Brexit deadline approaches. Melanie, it may have just been PR stuff, but Hausenworth said yesterday there was their most successful first day of a Freeze ever. There were lots of sales in the Zverna Gallery that we're facing now. That doesn't fit in with the narrative, does it?
1: Well... I think, I, I think Hazenwood always has its best ever fare. Um, but uh, yes, I'm sure they, did, they have done very well. Sweren has done very well. Some of our, I would say, the usual suspects, so Ropak and Scarsted are doing very well, but they have worked very hard to get to that point. There's quite a lot of stuff that magically had sold by 5 past 11 yesterday because, because people are working hard to make sure they sell.
0: Can you tell us something about what that means? Working hard to sell is basically a lot of a lot of prep with collectors before yes. they even get it's,
1: and lining people up. You know, come come and have a look. This is for. You. I mean, they may even have secured an actual sale, but someone says, "I want to look at it," or the person may not even be here. They're just not going to officially announce it as a sale until uh, until the fair opens.
0: So, what's your impression of of Freeze London? We're in the middle of Freeze London. Mm. Let's start with Freeze London. W- w- what's your impression of this year's fair?
1: I get the impression it's a gentler, more sober fair this year, perhaps reflecting a a more sober city. Um, There's a lot more painting than usual. There are fewer... And paintings are generally a safe bet if you want to sell. Um, Fewer flashy booths, attention-grabbing works it's quite classy but we're not used to freeze london being classy
0: (laughs) but you so in a sense freeze london is a bit more out there than perhaps basel might be it's normally
1: more raw yes i think the age of the artist generally is younger it's more feels more genuinely primary Uh, and i think the works here are genuinely primary just safer
0: Right. So let's, let's talk a bit about that. About you know paintings being a safe bet. So in other words, yes, you know, in a way, the sort of vanguard of, of art in, in museums. There's a, there's there's actually many more shows of of video and those kind of media, but still, for collectors, paintings are the thing.
1: Yes, and actually we saw, you know, there was an auction this week of Jeremy Lancaster's collection at Christie's, and a lot of those works were what I would call domestic size. I mean, they were tiny. They were things that people would take home and live with. And if you want to sell a work, you don't want to make it difficult to put in your home or to live with. So I think it, here in, in Freeze London, we're seeing more works. People are here to transact.
0: It's interesting that, isn't it? Because, like, for instance, on the Hausenworth stand here at Freeze, we, we, we've got a conversation with Mark Bradford later in this podcast, mm. uh, but his work here at Freeze is a great deal smaller than the work in that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And, I mean, curiously, in Freeze Masters there are quite a lot of war power. Uh, big, you know, there's a huge Alan Jones and a big pistoletto. But I think here in Freeze, London it's, it's safer.
0: Okay, so um, tell me about Freeze Masters then. Um, uh, the, the big focus of Freeze Masters has been this Botticelli. Mm. What do we know about what happened with that yesterday?
1: Well, we haven't heard that it's sold, and I, I get the feeling that we would have if it had. I, I think it's probably a big ask to sell a $30 million Botticelli at an art fair, but we'll see.
0: Obviously, you talk about how uh, uh, galleries do lots of prep ahead of the fairs, but... it it still surprises me that anyone turns up to a fair and basically sees a work and then exchanges money for it. (laughs) (laughs) We know from Johnny Van Heften, who's an an old master dealer, that actually this happened to two people he wasn't expecting came along and bought works from his stand.
1: Yes, Johnny Van Heften seems to be the exception to the rule of lining up collectors and buyers he says he had two people one from uh the u.s one from europe that he didn't know before walked into his booth at freeze masters and picked up two old master works including an able grimmer for more than a million pounds he also he said that he was very funny actually when i spoke to him yesterday he said they asked the prices and i think they were expecting tens of millions, and when they heard the price, so he, he's not sure whether or not they are normally contemporary and modern collectors, but he suspects so, that actually maybe relative to some of the 20th century work in Freeze Masters, uh, a work from 1604 is super cheap.
0: That, that is an interesting thing, isn't it? I think that's really that's a really um, common misconception about, about value in the art mm. world, that the older it is necessarily the value rises. Because it's true, isn't it, that, you know, for instance I know that side uh, Twombly sold at yesterday for quite a lot for many millions
1: yes exactly i think uh, that was 6.5 million that's the highest recorded sale i've uh, reported sale i've got so far and it's things
0: like there's you know there's, there's a few Juds yes. around and they must be again multi-million yeah. pound uh, work so yes yeah, it's, it's, it's that's a curious thing and I, mean, I suppose also because of the botticelli that kind of skews that's, that skews one's sense because we know that there is a 30 million old master then maybe that affects the way that the collectors are turning up and
1: yes that's a very good point actually they've probably got that in their head uh and one million pounds you know it's cheap
0: <laughs> so one of the reasons that people might be playing safe at, at fairs is obviously this sort of shadow of brexit um is if you've talked to dealers are they mentioning brexit when they talk about what they're doing
1: Yes, they are, and it was difficult yesterday to avoid it because we had the Tory party conference and Boris Johnson's speech at this, exactly the same time as the fair was opening to VIPs. Dealers are putting on a brave face at the beginning of a fair, which is normal, and they say they're not massively you know, bothered. This is an international, wealthy set, and they're going to buy wherever. But at the same time, everyone seems to be opening in Paris. So, I mean, we've heard there was an ART News report last night that Pace is opening in Paris, White Cube is opening in Paris, we know Zwerner is, there are rumours of Hauser and Worth. So people are obviously worried about something in London.
0: Of course, Paris has its own fair, doesn't it? FIAC. And I noticed, for instance, that you know, it makes me wonder what happens in terms of the position vis-à-vis Frieze and FIAC. You know, does FIAC now rise now that galleries are starting to flood towards Paris? Is there a sense in which Frieze has to be a bit careful in terms of how Brexit affects its status in the global art fair sort of market?
1: Yes, I think that's a good point. I mean, there are relatively few respected, what I would call international fairs in the world. It happens that two of them, Frieze and FIAC, are both in October um, they have both gradually been inching apart from each other, so they used to be back-to-back, uh, which was actually to both fairs disservice, whereas now FIAC is a couple of weeks away, but you are certainly, there are some, Kate McGarry, who is here at Freeze London, is doing FIAC for the first time, partly to reach out to you know a new set of collectors in what she would call Europe, um, and you know Dominic Levy, Levy-Gorvy, isn't here at the fair this year, but they are opening uh, in FIAC for the first time. So yes, there's a definite sense that uh, they're keeping each other on their toes, shall we say.
0: I mean, one gallery that has had a long presence in Paris and only relatively recently opened in London is Marianne Goodman, and I thought they were a notable absence from Frieze this year.
1: I agree. I-, I think there is just a sense that maybe if you can only do one fair this month, in the shadow of Brexit, maybe the one to do is FIAC.
0: Okay, let's talk about the market and fairs in general. Because you wrote an article for the Financial Times last weekend, and you, you're talking about is there this thing fair fatigue? You know, are, are there too many fairs? Is it a dwindling market? How, how, how is it all sitting right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, fairs aren't going away, but even the directors of fairs say they are there are too many fairs. Uh, they tend not to include their own in that, but there's too many fairs and there's too much activity around them. I think you even sense it this week i even sense that freeze london and freeze masters are sort of cannibalizing each other's audience um but what happens is that visitors get more choosy um fairs that have you know a reason to be a real niche and can grow their own audience will survive um there will be some that won't but you know we've heard we heard last week that Nazi Vazig is opening a new fair in May that is going to be in a sort of grand domestic setting with works out as you may put them in your home Um, so that sounds quite pleasant and I think fairs that are a pleasant place to be you won't feel as fatigued in... (laughs)
0: and so um let's talk about auctions then you mentioned the jeremy lancaster collection at christie's which was as you say sort of lots of domestically scaled works but strong works lots of howard hodgkins really strong howard hodgkins a really good guston i thought Mm. a good robert Ryman, that sort of thing um i've heard other mutterings that it's not a terribly strong season in even though it's one of the biggest sales periods at the auction houses what's your impression
1: Yeah, I think it's a thin season, certainly at Sotheby's tonight, uh, which has jazzed itself up with an interesting Banksy, but there aren't many lots and it's not very high value uh, compared to maybe other years. October is always a funny month um, because there is so much going around uh, and going on during freeze, but it's also a very good time to have a sale. Um, But it is, you know, I, I think consignments have been down since brexit was announced in 2016 london has had a bit of a boost because our currency is is relatively cheap so you know why not why not buy here um but things are a little bit muted uh, again i'm sorry it's brexit um and you know in a few weeks time sotheby's and christie's have some bumper sales in paris
0: that's interesting isn't it i was, I was wondering about that you know obviously there's no obligation for a British-based collector who wants to sell their work to sell their works in, in London, right? So exactly. th- they can sell it in New... If, if they feel that New York or Paris is a better market, then they'll go there, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, there are certain works that will sell better in London. And again, you know, Jeremy Lancaster is a good example of that. He mostly or originally bought modern British works and it's a good place to sell. Uh, and you've got a lot of the trade here as well. But yes, you can sell a work anywhere at any time over the internet
0: so, so when you look at the sale how do you judge its quality you know it, it, it's obviously there are lots of different value systems in place but when you're looking at a sale what, what makes you say that it's a, it's a stellar lineup and what what makes it less obvious
1: uh i think if you're if you're being completely honest sometimes it's the value of the, the works i mean these are very uh, these, these are very transactional moments uh with a huge number of lots in one go Um, and you know this week the value of the lots isn't as high as say New York in November Uh, that is partly in keeping with the fair week I mean the prices apart from some of the the multi-million ones we've mentioned most of the prices in this fair we're sitting in are actually under 100,000 and that is contemporary art at the moment and that's where it's at
0: Somebody somebody said to me that the that the auctions this week look the evening auctions this week look a bit more like day sales. What what does in in auction lingo? What does that mean?
1: (laughs) Well, again, partly that is you know the, the value level of value, but it is also if you have a major major work. Of huge art historical importance or sought after, or that has not been on the market, you know, regardless of its value, although the value would probably therefore be quite high. You are not going to choose Freeze Week in London in October to sell it at the moment. There are a couple of decent Basquiats coming up um, and a basil- lovely Basilitz at Sotheby's, but actually, you're going to wait for New York in November.
0: Okay, well we're on the brink i think of october the 31st (laughs) having a a different conversation or maybe we'll be back here i'm
1: I'm sort of hoping actually um somewhat victoria siddle said to me we've gone through three fairs under the shadow of brexit Uh, i'm sort of hoping we're still doing the same next year to be honest
0: (laughs) okay well maybe we'll be sitting here having the same conversation (laughs) but for, for now melanie thank you very much thank you ben You can read Melanie Gurliss's Art Market columns weekly in the Financial Times and in the art newspaper every month and, of course, online. The Freeze Art Fair continues until Sunday, the 6th of October. Now for the first of our three artist interviews. Mark Bradford was a relative latecomer to art. He first went to CalArts, the legendary Los Angeles art school, when he was 30. Before then, he'd worked in his mother's hair salon and the materials of hairstyling, the end papers used in perming hair, were the raw materials of his earliest work. Now, he's one of the US's most prominent artists, representing his country at the Venice Biennale in 2017, and a painting by him sold for a and Worth stand here at Freeze for $3.4 million on the first VIP day. His latest show, Cerberus, named after the three-headed dog that guards the underworld in Greek mythology, is at House and Worth here in London, and I went there to meet him. Mark, we're standing in the North Gallery of House and Worth here, surrounded by three paintings, all of which are enormous, but which share a sim- similar origin story, right, in the sense that there is this map underpinning them. Can you tell us about that map?
2: Yeah, the, um, it's from 1965. It's from the Macon Report. And and really, the map was really interesting, as I love maps, as, as they always are. But what was interesting about this one was, too, it was based on the 1965 riots, and the way that they kind of delineated the data they kind of had blue for looted and and red for death and that kind of these little hot spots really kind of fascinated me so that's really where i kind of started kind of laying this map with these hot spots but once i laid down all of the hot spots on the map then imagination took over and you start accumulating more and more hot spots and it starts to float on top and it kind of So it's almost like the social became abstraction. And that's kind of what I I love to do, is I love to take something social and abstract it, but you know that it's fully not going to ever belong to the history of abstraction. It's not going to fully belong to the landscape of where it came. It exists somewhere in between. And that, for me as an artist, gives me that space of kind of, um, I can uh, work out my ideas, my pain, my trauma, my position, in that in-between space. It's, it's, It's not... It's not, it's, it's, um, it's not just imagination, it's not just a social. It becomes this thing that exists in, in, in kind of that grey area.
0: Can you set the context of the Watts riots? Because you would have been three, I'm thinking, three. when they happened. So your family, you, you have first-hand experience. You, I guess you've talked to people about these riots. They're, they're part of the cultural history of L.A., Tell me about your, your personal relationship, if you like, with, that, with those stories.
2: Well, it's interesting is because uh, my relationship in 1965 is all through stories. It's almost like myth building by this point. In 1992, I was actually in the 1992 Watts Rebellion. I was, I was at my, the hot spot of my hair salon, was right in the middle of where everything was burning. We put up black shades and kept working after the curfew so that one I have these real vivid memories and I didn't want to use that one because it was too much, it was, it was almost too new. So 1965 was my mother, my mother remembers 1965, uh, the Dancing in the Streets uh, video which is part of the show, it, ha- it has a double meaning. One side is that it was a beautiful 1965 summer song of Dancing in the Streets, Motown, Martha Reason, and the Vandellas. Another side was that it was actually a call to arms, people that protested in these cities are actually burning. So it became, was it was it constructed and was it used for the civil unrest or was it just um, a coincidence? I like this, it sits in between the two. So everything that I understood about 1965 was through my mother, through her friends, and both friends, when I sat them down, my mother and her friend, one, one of her friends said absolutely, it was no, it was just a wonderful song for the for Motown summer. And my mom was like, absolutely, it was a revolutionary song. It was a call to arms and we absolutely, and it went through the airwaves and we knew exactly what it was. So it still to this very day has this fabric of myth and that's why I used that, that uh, extra song.
0: Let's talk about myths then because the name of this show and the name of this vast painting that we're yeah. standing in front of now is Cerberus, which mm-hmm. is the three-headed dog. Yeah, Why that myth? What, 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 what does it signify? <clears throat> um...
2: I love sometimes sometimes actually pushing things back to what I call these empty containers, being being African-American, being from South Central, being a hairdresser, blah, 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 these kind of easy equations that you can just fall into these kind of what I call kind of uh, traps and everything. So I thought, oh, is it possible to be able to take something from 1965 and push it all the way back to kind of Sebris? Really for Sebris for me was about... This modern-day gatekeeping, this modern-day kind of xenophobia, this kind of uh, watching out. And I, I live in a, 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 a border. I live in between the U.S. and Mexico. So all of the language at the moment is absolutely about watching out, watchdogs, invasions. They're coming. You often wonder who's coming. So this kind of um, invasion, xenophobia, this kind of um, over-inscribing of one's position, and so that's really where I, I came, it was a three-headed pit bull for me, because in my neighborhood there's a lot of pit bulls, and actually years ago I wanted to make a sculpture of a three-headed pit bull, I didn't even, so I, didn't even I just remembered that from years ago, so for me it's um, borders, it's border keepers, it's, it's kind of people who, who were not talking to each other, we're simply just guarding.
0: That's all right. Cerberus is essentially a border patrol. That's thing, all he right? is,
2: a mangy border patrol. <laughs> Flea-ridden, <laughs> mangy border patrol, right? He's not, probably not even getting paid for it, right? So I kind of took out the hell and the good and the sort of things like that.
0: Um, the, the, obviously, when you look at these pictures, you can't but read contemporary what's going on in America. I mean, literally overnight, D- Donald Trump has quoted a pastor who talks about civil war. Oh, did he do that today?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. Uh, and, and I think... Cahindra you know, Wiley just put up a statue of a, of a Confederate, uh, but using an African-American figure on a horse just a few days ago. It's really int- kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. So it's tempting to read a lot of darkness into these pictures and a lot of, you know, end times feeling. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is, this is a, it looks very much like a world that's been somehow reclaimed by nature, as you've pointed out. Can you tell me about that you know, Is it a deliberate strategy to give this feeling of of in a sense uh, civilization at its end and being reclaimed by nature?
2: Uh, well, in this show, I have to admit that I, I definitely wanted it to feel like a kind of a urban uh, kind of grids and, and hot spots, and then, as you move into the second room, I did kind of want to have a feeling of removing the hot spots and having the urban turn into nature or a a kind of an urban nature uh, anger what the roots pull so i did want to have that kind of relationship it's just that we're having so many conversations around you know man versus nature or what we as men are doing to nature so i was kind of interested in sort of like uh, the 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 dead beach whale. when you cut him open and all the plastic that he's ingested both you know that's unnatural and something natural so I was really playing with this idea of both the natural and the unnatural environment, the kind of man-made environment and the environment, because the earth will heal itself eventually. We will be the ones that are gone. It's going to take a really long time. So I just wanted to play with the both in the work, or play in this show.
0: And there's a, there's a sense of deluge about the, the work that we're looking at just in front of us over here. There's, a, there's this sort of blue, very fluid, liquid mark. And again, that Evokes some sort of feeling of, um, of seas reclaiming the land to yeah. a certain
2: degree. I d- I, and it's funny though, I, I, I work with a lot of water to make these, a lot of hosing them down kind of. Um, I was just playing with kind of um, what are the things that change the kind of landscape immediately? Fire, earthquakes, floods these kind of natural, they call, we call them disasters, but uh, yeah, are we the disaster? And are they sort of, so it's the same thing It reminded me of um, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, this kind of when the levee broke and, and how the water just kind of erased all the buildings, but they left these kind of grids. And they also had these markings on the homes, this kind of, um... and also what was super fascinating to me was in the 1965 map, Really, the hot spots were data, but it was looting, it was death, it was kind of robberies. And this idea that we're fascinated by data, but we try to flatten it's really pain. It's really a person, we flatten pain into data. Actually, I think in some ways, so that we can kind of distance ourselves from it. I mean, Aleppo up close is very different than when you see a bomb dropping. It's kind of this, and even in my work, I like to do this kind of micro, very up close, and then macro, very far away.
0: Can we talk about, about, about that engagement with the present? Because one of the things that strikes me is that on, there are two periods in, in sort of art history where we think about grand scale. And one of them is 19th century and um, those sort of what were called the grand machines of French history painting, and then we think about American post-war abstraction. We talk about both in the context of the sublime. And it seems to me that... No. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) So, okay, why not?
2: No, um, that's not... I've I've never... The sublime is kind of internal... gestalt that you can kind of just look, away. no, that is absolutely something I've never been interested in, but I do believe that there is a possibility of, of, of uh, uh, a collective uh, sublime in the city and sort of like you see it you know, you can see it when people collectively come together or you can see it when we reach out and truly help each other when people are in need or um, and those type of things, but my idea of abstraction is not something that internal well first of all, what am I going to this kind of 1950s kind of uh, American New York school and they sort of Pollock was internalizing a Native American kind of and, and channeling these well, what am I what, you know the darker energy to kind of spew it out? Well I'm already dark. what am I going to internalize my? internal Scandinavian. The whole whole project never worked for me. Like it never ever worked for me. So I just stayed away from that. What did work for me was this idea that I could look at kind of things that I was interested in. I was interested in kind of racial assumptions. I was interested in gender and and kind of AIDS and certain things like that. But I could I could turn that out, I could turn my gaze outside and I could demand that I was going to navigate in these spaces, but I was going to abstract it or I was going to create a space within Between the social and the abstraction that was purely mine, yeah, and that I was going to mine that territory, and of course, that is a fundamental
0: undermining process in terms of abstraction, because abstraction, in to a certain degree, some some forms of abstraction certainly emptied out content. That you know, the content was this was was if anything, it was it was it was in the in the realm of the spiritual, whereas yours is so profoundly connected to the real and to the everyday, right?
2: Yeah, I was per- perfectly... Com- and that was the only thing that, I, and of course I thought it was kind of interesting, the painting was dead. I, was, I went to school in the 90s and we'd all read the theories about painting is dead and we'd been, the critique had been critiqued and the critiqued, And this kind of big white males and the cowboy artists, and I thought, well, that'd be an interesting sight. Why not? It'd be an interesting sight to kind of open up. And I never bothered with the word no... Or you shouldn't go. If you tell me not to go somewhere, it's like, don't go to that club, Mark. That's the first club I'm going to go to. You can, <laughs> you can guarantee I'm going to go to that club. So that was kind of a, the kind of no, 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 you, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. That's not. And um, I saw it as a site. Really, it was just a site. It was really just a site to kind of unpack these ideas.
0: I read in um, Jory Finkel's book where she asked lots of artists to talk about works that had affected them in some way. Yeah. And you talked about Rothko in that, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, and, and it was on your bedroom, it was like literally on your bedroom wall, but tell me about that, because it's a really interesting idea that.
2: It was a painting and I looked at it and I thought, well, this is an interesting painting, and I put it on my wall and I remember looking at it and wondering, I would wonder more about the painting than anything. I kind of looked at it and I never associated myself with being an artist. I kind of, I think I bought it because it was blue or my mom bought it, I think it just appeared there. I just looked at it from as my 13-year-old like looking at it and wondering about it but I didn't have any good, good a gestalt to like yes and I read the story years years ago uh, about him and I was like eh <laughs> like eh but um the Rothko Chapel I was not ever interested in creating these sublime spaces
0: tell me um more about your technique because Um, One of the things I'm really interested in is how much of, are you always on a sort of cusp of total destruction? Always.
2: That's unfortunate, but yeah, yeah it is. uh, Someone asked me over there, how many paintings do I throw away? About 50%. Yeah, about 50. Well, when you work with paper, paper basically is just pulp, but it is a very unforgiving material, no matter how much linseed you put on it's not going to reveal anything it's a just a it's a brutal material there's it's there's no bleeding there's nothing that you can see underneath the color so you really have to develop a language completely around it it has also a lot to do with when you put the paper on the drying time drying the sun versus in heat lamps all these things have to do with it so i stumbled on working with paper, not as a conceptual or theoretical thing, but just I was trying to pull a, a material that belonged in the world. It was in papers from the hair salon. It was cheap. That's where I started. But everything after that was me having to develop a language around this material. Okay, what's the next layer? Where do I get the paper from? How do I wet down this paper that comes from this... What I did was that I found that if I liquefied it or if I used water, the paper would become more pulpous. It would, it would, it would, the fibers would become looser. So it's just really developing 25 years of working with the same material that you just learn. Well, you learn tricks. What can I tell you? Yeah.
0: But you, you use an angle grinder and you jet wash it. So you, you build up these layers, right? So I suppose I'm, I'm interested in... Do those layers come back and forth? So once you've gone, once you've built up the layers, do more, and, and then you've applied the jet wash. Can you then build more layers? And is, is it a real toing and froing? Is it a completely organic process? Or it's is back and forth. Systematic?
2: No, no, no. It, well, the system you you build as best you can within a system of what you think the work should be. But you have to always understand that it's not. it's, it's not perfect. The, uh, the water pressure, depending on which how, how aggressive it is, it may rip it off. And sometimes the reason why I use the water pressure instead of the sander is because the water pressure creates crevices that gives it more of a um, sculptural feeling, whereas the, the sander was beginning to make it too slick feeling, and I wasn't uh, unearthing enough of the layers. So, well, how do I do that? Oh, it's paper. Oh, it rains and when it rains the paper peels off. So I'll need to go get a jet washer. Oh, but it's too it's too delicate. Let me get a a a, a professional jet washer that you use on cars. Everything has to be just figured out. And then you talked about the end papers, but
0: you've also used other forms of paper with a distinct cultural history haven't you you, do, you talked about those merchant signs in merchant LA you, posters you, yeah, yeah merchant merchant posters so these are things that would just pop up in the streets and might be there for a day or, or mm-hmm. you know a week or whatever but you would you would go out and find them and they would become again a kind of so way of bringing what you could you know the social into the work
2: how how, how I, I i would walk around and say what are the little details that i could bring that are loaded but not so loaded they're going to overwhelm my practice into my studio and kind of work through abstraction. And I would, at my eye, I would begin to look for things that pointed to not just the obvious, the, the sort of like the big narratives of like you know, the hip hop narrative. I call it the, the hip hop narratives, the romantic narratives, right? I'd stay away from car culture. I'd stay away from you. But I'd always look for, so mercantile, and I always look for kind of, and, and merchant posters didn't even have a name when I started calling them merchant posters. They were just these, but uh, uh, are you losing your home in 30 days? We'll buy your home in 30 days. Um, um, clean up your credit. Erase your, 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 your record, uh, criminal record. And so you, be, you would begin to get a, a footprint or, of exactly what was happening in that local community. There was already a need, which is very different than kind of billboard advertising, which billboard advertising works just the opposite they take kind of the citizen and they they create the need. You do want this 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 car. You do want this new iPad. You do want this new iPhone. Whereas these kind of local kind of billboards or merchant posters, there's already a need. We are we know you're losing your house because we sold it to you at thirty five percent more, and we know you're getting so we know that we know that there's bed bugs because lots and lots of people are cramming into these certain parts of the city because immigration or something like that so it's always it's just the opposite the need is always it's always i always call it parasitic it's like parasitic, parasitic advertising um and i'm always checking off what's new the newest one which i was really fascinated car title loans in 15 minutes that was the newest I when i was getting on the free one i thought oh that's big time like crisis so, we know we're using your car, losing your car, so we're going to give you a small amount. You're going to give us a title. You're not going to come back, and we're going to keep the car.
0: So, in a way, what, what those merchant posters are, are telling us is about, is about the precariousness of communities, right? Absolutely. So, so it's, it's another way of articulating these fragile relationships between the cities and
2: the city and its people, Yes. And, and in, a, in, a, in a very direct way. Even my paintings—they almost look like they're uh, five minutes from collapse. I mean, they really—you sort of like—they kind of have that feeling, and they kind of there's a kind of a strength, but I, I still vulnerability. It's not—it's 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 not just strength, and it's not just vulnerability. It's we we occupy something right in the middle.
0: And and that really comes through in the video next door because. On the one hand, there's this absolutely triumphant performance of "Dancing in the Street" by Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, and then on the other hand, you're projecting it onto buildings, and we're not quite sure what they are. What what, what are these spaces that are the recipients of this sort of um, sort of almost ghostly information that you're projecting onto them? Can you tell me what those spaces represent?
2: Yeah, they're like like psycho spaces. like um, like, like uh, for me, it was sort of like. Um, taking something that has memory obviously the song has a lot of memory but then projecting it onto contemporary buildings but you feel in the beginning that it is 1965 until you look a little bit closer because I kind of kept running the material through and it all st- until it felt like film but then you start seeing modern graffiti you start seeing modern day cars and then you start to have a disconnect between again the social and kind of a, a kind of abstraction it exists right in the middle where it's it's a palimpsest of things social, but then it also has to do with Mark's imagination and it's a mix of the two and invariably just becomes this artwork. And that was actually really fun. A little dangerous too, actually, just to kind of just kind of do it. <laughs>
0: dangerous in what well sense?
2: Just I mean it's just do it. You know you just do it. You get in the van and you just do it. You know. Just like, all right, well, we're gonna get load up everybody and we're gonna see if this works. It's another way of mapping the city, though, isn't it? I mean,
0: it's, it, what's, what's night, interesting yeah. is, it, so in a way, you, what we have in many of these paintings around us are, are sort of essentially planned views of the city, the city from above, the God's view of, of the city. In in that film, it's, it's at street level, yeah. and you're tracing, his, you're tracing so many histories yeah. in that vehicle.
2: And that's what I, I wanted the difference between, like, God's view, and that was very micro, very up close. You could see, and I wanted to make the faces big, so it felt like this kind of... Um, you know, psychogeography, this kind of, uh, that had this, like, ghost of memory on top of it. And that part, and I really wanted to keep it in the part of the city that would have been part of 1965, that buildings in that part of the city would have burned down. And what was built was probably a lot of manufacturing, because in that part of the city, probably in 1965, the people probably moved out and manufacturing moved in. So it's always interesting how, wars and kind of unrest remap parts of the city very quickly. Um, They turn from one culture, they turn from an economic base, so these kind of housing collapses and these kind of uh, of political unrest, they really do remap cities.
0: A lot of what we're talking about is really troubling to a certain extent. Do you do you have a feeling for how you want these works to be received? Is there, is there hope in these images as, and, and the film as much as there is um, a concern about our present reality? Well,
2: you know, there's hope in me. So I hope that, that the hope that I have in me does show in the work. There are dark times. Even within dark times and, and dark moments, there still is hope and there still is beauty and there still is a reason for you to get up, put a little gel on your hair and go out. So for me, I can remember in the 80s when I was 18 years old, and there was, it was a very dark time. I mean, everybody, that 75% of the people that I knew died of AIDS. It was very new. The, the, the Reagan administration wouldn't even talk about it. It was very dark. Uh, gang violence was very high. But still, you, you find ways to navigate, and you still find ways to find community, and you find ways to have belief. I've always had belief. I will continue to have belief. I've, I've had tough times pretty much my whole life. But that has not stopped me from having belief and hope and love as well. But I just bring them all together. I just bring it all together. I don't, I don't um, turn away from the violence just because I, I want to see beauty. Uh, there's a certain vulnerability.
0: So in a sense, that idea of the city being reclaimed by nature is also a message or metaphor potentially for hope, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It it, it 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 will that this this will it'll turn around. And it always does, and that's what I have. I play with those two kind of things back and forth in the show. Mark, thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Mark Bradford, Cerberus is at Hauser and Worth in London until the twenty-first of December. Now, Ai Weiwei is also in London and indeed about to make a permanent move to the UK. His exhibition, Roots, is just open at the Listen Gallery and Louisa Buck, the contemporary art correspondent for the art newspaper, went there to talk to him.
3: So, Weiwei, in the past you've worked with iron sculptures made from wood sourced in China, but this new show features cast iron sculptural works made from roots of trees... Sourced from Brazil. Tell me, tell me about these. What's? How did these come about?
4: Well, I, I my works has been fascinated by wood uh, from very uh, sophisticated type of uh, carpentry and uh, um, plumbing type of work. You know, related to furniture and uh, architecture. To the most uh, wild uh, n- nat- uh, nature-looking roots or branches. Uh, since I was uh, have an exhibition in Brazil, so I'm very fascinated to to use the local materials uh, uh, f- from that uh, environment. And uh, you know, I, f- I find those are very old uh, roots and uh, which are hundreds, hundred years old and uh, they are very expressional and uh, so I restructure it into some kind of uh, sculpture which carries the memory of the, the the forces in the nature.
3: They rear up almost like animals they've got a very powerful presence
4: yes they are they are very uh, uh, it shows uh, the struggle of life. Um, what well, they had before, mm, they, they they try to grab the reality and they're uh, you know trying to hold themselves on the ground, and you see that it's uh, very obvious.
3: And they're particularly topical now in view of what's happening in the Amazon, with the burning of the Amazon. And do you, I, I was told you have a film crew filming the burning of the Amazon. Is that correct?
4: Yes, yeah, since uh, we visited there, we started filming. The arm, um, and we paid attention in recent uh, months. There have been a huge fire, and uh, um, you know, not so much reporting in this uh, part of the world, but in there, it's devastating. And uh, we have a filming team there, and uh, trying to um, to find out what really is going on. You see, those uh, woods are being burned. Those those uh, animals and human, human beings t- uh, terribly affected by this burning.
3: So these roots are literally uprooted and exposed and then transported away from their home soil. Um, in a way, this could be seen as a kind of a, a reference to your situation, leaving China, being allowed to leave China in 2015 and then settling in Berlin and, and now in the UK. Is it, is it in some way referring to your situation as well?
4: I think uh, the, the 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 refugee situation, it's about uh, you pull out uh, a tree from uh, the ground and uh, and expose its roots, and uh, you know it's not a, it doesn't really belong to what it should be. So you have uh, over 70 million refugees in the world being pulled out and uh, to be relocated and to be. Seeing as n- not human, no, no identity ever would relate to them. Once they lost their language, their religion, neighborhood, and uh, and very necessary uh, environment for a human being, and just like a tree being pulled pulled out from the ground.
3: Yeah, this displacement and your new Lego pieces as well refer to. Amongst other things, the refugee situation, the trajectory of the boat that was not allowed to dock, and then eventually docked in Lampedista. So you've, you've got these these references running right the way through your work in all different media.
4: Yes, uh, it's um, it's uh, cases to study humanity of our time and uh, how far we we have been um, moving from the. Original concept: uh, We are all created equal, and we all have a precious life. All the rights need to be protected. You know.
3: Tell me about these new Lego pieces, because of course it's a child's toy that you've used to very explicit political ends. You've got the front page of the Mueller report into the Russian intervention into the presidential election. You've got the trajectory of of refugee boats, and indeed a picture that you took of yourself. Just before you were assaulted, that picture has been rendered in, in Lego bricks. Why have you used this particular medium for these very particular sources, and of course Tiananmen Square as well? The paint splats on the, on the Mao were also rendered in Lego.
4: I think Lego is uh, is a playful toy for for children. At the same time, uh, this kind of practice is from a Roman time. You see uh, this uh, mazak. Uh, had been uh, using colored stones to, to create images has been a very ancient uh, um, uh, art forming or, or some designs. So I think it's perfect uh, to, to to use this kind of language because we are living in a time um, post-industrial and, uh, and also um, information and technology relate to computer and can digitally and um, pixel uh, design uh, a image which can be precisely uh, clear and so all those um, qualities can be easily related to uh, Lego um, Lego I would not call it as a painting but uh, the works so that's why I, I'm I'm still uh, trying to to use this uh, media, which is very familiar by, by young generation and, uh, and to to carry out some uh, um, message, which I think is kind uh, of ironic and, uh, and it really reflects our time.:
3: The child's toy that has such a serious message and then the other component of this show is refers to a much more ancient Craft and symbolism of of the kites, the beautiful handmade kites in in wood and paper that reproduce many, many symbols, tatlins tower, dragons, your famous raised finger symbol of defiance, and they all float across the walls here. What was a particular inspiration for using this work here, clustered together?
4: Uh, again, the the bamboo work is uh, from this traditional kite and the silk, and I think it's uh, light and beautiful, and they use very simple method to, to, I, I try to extend it to, to do the, the mythology, which, you know, um, some are from old ancient times, some are from the, the modern contemporary practice, such as Tuttlein's, uh, uh, monument, but also do it uh, three-dimensional, and two-dimensional. So you have shadows created by those bamboos. So it's visually, maybe the most playful uh, possibilities you can get uh, from a, um, a not two-dimensional surface because it's uh, it's really hanging there, but it's really very uh, visually very playful. So the kites
3: in a way float in the float in the wind. The tree roots are displaced into another area, and you yourself have come to rest in a new place. You're now living in the UK, and you're based now permanently in Cambridge. Is that true?
4: I I had an uh, apartment in Cambridge. Uh, my son and my partner has been there for over a month, and uh, my son is very happy for his uh, new uh, school study. I travelled from Cambridge to London this morning. It takes about an hour. It's very convenient.
3: And what made you want to come and stay in the UK? We're not in the most stable of times at the moment.
4: I, I like trouble. <laughs> I like to be in the area which is not a very, uh, you know, not very settled. And I, I think it's a lot of argument, a lot of uh, interesting discussions.
3: And of course, back back in Hong Kong. Things have got much worse. They escalated this weekend, live ammunition being used. Do you still have a film crew filming there?
4: I've, our crew has been filmed there for the uh, past 100 days. And uh, we are we are documenting the whole uh, movement. And we interview a lot of young people to see who, who they are and why they have to take this kind of daily uh, demonstration, which is very difficult. Very bad, very harsh. The you know, police treat them not like a human. And they really, you know, the, the Hong Kong people born after 2000, and, uh, or you know, they are they're very young. Some youngsters only 13 years old, and they they they're very ideological. Uh, you know, uh, uh, very they they demand freedom. They not demand for housing or salary. They demand freedom. They don't. Uh, like to be controlled by uh, China you know, it, For them China is a monster and that will crash them and uh, you can see the situation getting um, worse and worse, you know uh, Hong Kong government uh, totally give up the responsibility they become a really a uh, puppet for central government and central government is very, you know, is the most arrogant uh, uh, authoritarian society they just license getting rotten and uh, they may then take it over so.
3: and so you feel I think, do you feel then it's, it's your responsibility as an artist as Ai Weiwei to bear witness and to keep communicating and to keep this vigilance there because perhaps other countries and other powers that be are ignoring this situation
4: um, yes for several reasons because I come from china i, I know what they are worried about is uh is real you know I got disappeared in in China and my mom would never know where I am there's no lawyer I would be under very severe uh, type of uh uh it. it's kind of like kidnapping a uh, kidnapping by the state. So this kind of thing happens in China, very common. You know, the, the lawyers disappear, the, you know, the journalists disappear. So uh, I can see the, 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 you know, it's real, it's not, a, you know, fantasy. So I, that's why I, I, I have a, a support for Hong Kong people because I, I think we share the same kind of ideology and we defend the same kind of values. So your vigilance is
3: straddling right across from the film crews in the Amazon to the film crews in Hong Kong and continuing also your work with, with refugees as well.
4: Yeah, we have uh, three films uh, about refugees and the two already come out. One is on the way, you know, still in post-production and we just did a film about the Mexico disappearance of the students, 43 students disappeared in Uh, uh, five years ago and uh, still, you know, this uh, state with impunity and, uh, you know, crime never can be solved in Mexico. So all those issues are are related to um, ordinary people's uh, daily life and uh, and, and reflects the general social condition.
3: Do you feel that art could be doing more to to help, I mean, you, you are you are very much vigilant across all these different aspects of our troubled times. Do you feel that artists should be doing more to communicate and doing more to be vigilant as well? We're we're, on, we're just about to launch an enormous art fair across London. It all seems, you know, a very a very kind of almost inappropriate way to be responding to what's going on in the world around us.
4: I think the art has been very glamorous and uh, selling high prices, and uh, you know, come to decorate our culture or museums and the galleries, but at the same time uh, uh, really falling uh, re- responsibility of the, towards society. Art is supposed to be conscious of the society, it's supposed to have uh, imagination about our future. And uh, I think in that sense, I think the art world uh, really uh, not doing that well. I think uh, art can do much more. You know, it should be, uh, and it should reflect the, our condition about our state of mind, our consciousness, and uh, and also about uh, the hope.
3: Well, let's end on a note of hope. Ai Weiwei, thank you very much.
4: Thank you.
0: Iwayway, Roots is at the Listen Gallery until the second of November. We'll be back with Peter Doig and with Hetty Judah after this. For the German expressionist painter Franz Marc, the horse became the defining and most recognisable motif of a career cut tragically short by a sniper's bullet during World War I. Faired, his large work on paper, offered at Bonham's Impressionist and Modern Art sale in October, dates from 1912, shortly after Marc and Vasily Kandinsky had founded their Blauer Reiter. This movement was dedicated to a new approach to art, emphasising spirituality over materialism. Unseen in public for more than 70 years, the work has never appeared at auction. According to Bonham's global head of Impressionist and Modern Art, India Phillips, Faird shows the artist exploring the potential of colour and symbols to render a spiritualised vision of the world around him, a tantalising example of his development during the short years of the Blauer Writer Group. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, Peter Doig has a show of new paintings at the Michael Werner Gallery. Doig has lived a peripatetic life. He was born in Edinburgh in 1959, lived briefly in Trinidad as a child, but grew up mostly in Canada. He studied art in London, first in the late 70s and early 80s, and then at the end of that decade. Soon afterwards, he gained widespread acclaim. Based in London throughout the 1990s, he took up an artist residency in Trinidad in 2000, and eventually moved to the Caribbean island in 2002. Now, he's based between there and New York, and his Michael Werner exhibition reflects Trinidad's enduring influence on his work. I went to the gallery to meet him. Peter, before we start talking about this show, I'd like to talk about a show that was here in this same gallery a few years ago, which is of your early work. Um, Because it seems to me that, as I'm looking at your current work, that that show of early work might have affected the way you thought about your work
5: in general is is is, is that fair i think it's fair um and i think it was important for me to show the early work um you know i came to london as a as a late teen and ended up at art school and uh i had three three years at st martin's and then i would say about three years after that where i made work that was in a similar vein and um I don't know it's, it's I was embarrassed about it for many years and but not so embarrassed that I wanted to just destroy it <laughs> sadly I did destroy some things that, that I regret having destroyed but um, I don't know I guess as I got older I was able to look back on it and see that it was from a time and um, it was probably something I never would be able to do again and the way that sort of inspiration came and just sort of, you know the quickness from seeing something and then sort of Making something, referencing it, or being inspired, and uh, I think that you're right that uh, this exhibition and the last few, and then even going back to the the kind of film poster things I was doing in Trinidad, um, were kind of very much kind of inspired by you know <laughs> reminding myself I you know I could I could be a bit sort of more open.
0: That's interesting. So, you mean, when you say more open, you mean more open to different painterly influences, different forms of imagery?
5: Well, just different ways of, like, more direct ways of making, really, and more um, not not to be so embarrassed about the sort of cruder aspects of the way that you know that I draw naturally or. Um, or I paint, and I think the earlier work was less less self-conscious maybe than some of the work that I made um, in the late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s.
0: When you say self-conscious,
5: what do you mean? Well, I think that when I returned to college as a 31-year-old, you know, things had really changed in the art world, even though I was not part of it, as on the very, very fringes. Um and I think that the early work, as I said, I mean, I just was absolutely no part of the art world and not any really any interest in it, really. I mean, I, yes, I love looking at paintings, but I wasn't um, really actively looking at work in the commercial galleries because there wasn't that much that interested me, really. Um, so I think that the work I made in those days, would be fair to say that I made for my own audience, which was an audience of friends and fellow painters and, um, and, um, you know, influence came from, I wouldn't say unlike the places, but, um, you know, different places than what the mainstream art world were looking at. I mean, not totally cause, mm. you know, I, I did have respect for some of um, the artists that were showing of my kind of generation, not in this country because none did <laughs> but in the US for instance um, but then I think that when I returned to college in the early 90s late late 80s early 90s things had very much changed and I think that uh, in a sense you fe- you kind of felt you had to sort of take a position and I think I did take a position I took a position that was very sort of anti what um, um, I was seeing in, in, in galleries anti the sort of the machine-made, anti the sort of workshop-made, anti anti the sort of uh, conceptual. Really, it was more, and I went deeper into into sort of the realms of uh, folk art, I guess, or the homely, <laughs> and um, and the the crude, and deliberately sort of um, engaged with painters from the past that in a way had that kind of aesthetic in their work It's a fitting
0: moment then to start talking about the works in this show because I, I, it's, it feels to me looking at it, that, that you've set yourself some quite difficult compositional challenges in terms of your, the way that you're bringing material together and that material comes from all, all manner of sources from other art from your memories and from photographs. Can you tell me something about that process how organic is it, how how much is it a process where you uh, are bringing things in in a kind of ordered way, and how much of it is a kind of yeah, you know, actually all done very much in the moment in the
5: studio? Well, it's always a way. It's always about trying to find a way to um, to get to a place that yes could be remembered from experience um, or from um, even even in the way that a photograph can in a way sort of like um, jolt um, a memory um, and remind one of, of, of something or a person or a place and then also the reaction my reaction against the photographic really um, as much as I find it important um, and it's always, always kind of a bit of a, a tool for me I'm I really not interested in making um, paintings that you know, like look like photographs, really. Um, so, it's a combination of uh, different methods that um, you know come about to make to make a painting.
0: We have a painting near us where we sit in this in this back room of Michael Werner Gallery, which features a bather figure. And this is a figure that's appearing repeatedly in the work in two paintings in this show, in one in the last show that was here. And it's and it's based on a photograph of Robert Mitchum. Can you tell me about how this came into your thinking and, 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 in a sense, what what it represents in the work. Yeah. Um,
5: well, I was always intrigued by the fact that Robert Mitchell had spent um, time in Trinidad and he'd been there for, I think, ten months and he'd made two feature films. And apparently he spent yeah, ten months there. Um, but it's very difficult to find out or read about what he kind of got up to other than make these two films. There's, there's very little sort of... Um, there's very little written about it, if any, really. And yet when he arrives back in America, after spending 10 months in Trinidad, he releases a, a record of Clipso songs. And although not... It's not a parody, it's not a terrible record. It's actually it's got a few quite um, interesting versions of classics. Um, it, and Clipso was obviously very fashionable at that point in time. I mean, you know, the biggest selling album of all time uh, was Harry Belafonte's Sings Calypso, so a lot of people wrote on the back of that kind of pre-rock and roll. Um, yeah, so I was always intrigued by this Robert Mitchum in Trinidad, and so I googled um, Robert Mitchum Trinidad, and this picture came up on online, and of course the picture was not from when he was in Trinidad, it was from when he was, a, I think, a late teenager, somewhere like Coney Island, and he's probably before an actor, and he's like almost... 30 years before he went to Trinidad so he's a much more youthful Robert Mitchell but I, I thought the pose was incredible sort of archetypal um, and there was the hands I thought were really interesting like the way he's kind of holding his hands he's obviously posing for photographs he seems a little bit sort of nervous um, the face I don't know I just found I found it was a. it, it was an interesting model for me to use as a, as a sort of male figure of a, of a bather and there's obviously a tradition of bathing paintings going way back and um, you know I was influenced in the, in my case by um, paintings made by Mars and Hartley uh, of bathers on the main beaches and um, you know they're kind of monumental and awkward and um, you know sort of are they erotic I mean erotic for him obviously but maybe not so erotic for us but you know the the intention. Um, you can see his intention, and that that's important, I think. Um, and then going back to the the music and sort of you know this 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 man arriving in Trinidad, and making an album. You know, it has to be said superficially based on one of the the great Trinidad art forms, which is calypso, which has got such a deep history, and it goes all the way back until. You know, the the influences in clips are as are, are, a whole other story. And lyrically and everything, in a way, it's pure appropriation. And um, I kind of thought of this as a kind of... as maybe a sort of... a kind of way I could sort of question my own self, really. And uh, my own my own self being in a place like Trinidad and, you know, what's permissible, what's allowable... What can you get away with? What can't you?
0: And and doesn't it relate to a,
5: a photograph of you as a as a as a child as well? Well, there are photographs of me as a child um, that are kind of similar, and um, there are elements in the photo of me as a child that were also yeah in some of the paintings, definitely. Yeah. And there's a sense in which,
0: I mean. We are, we don't have to know any of this, do we? When as a viewer, this isn't actually essential. This is intri- intriguing and interesting information, and yet,
5: well, I'm only telling you because this is um, this is the reason for me to make the painting. It's not the re- It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not important for either liking or indeed hating it. I mean, again, there are sort of echoes which
0: come into various of the works. For instance, this yellow wall, which is a really powerful presence in several of the paintings, and that's a, a prison wall in Trinidad, but it's also an expanse of canvas, an expanse of yellow canvas, which is this sort of amazingly radiant yellow. Uh, tell me about that. Well,
5: it's a fact, and it's a, <laughs> a phenomenon and it's um, a reality for a lot of people, sadly, but there is a big prison in the centre of Port of Spain, and it takes up a whole city block, and um it's quite striking when you first see it and it's continually being painted i mean it's it's and so the, and the shades of yellow sort of vary from a sort of like a Naples yellow to sometimes something a little bit brighter and um i think it was built by the definitely built, built by the british it was kind of like a a garrison i guess and um you know it's kind of we all know it's quite quite it it's awful in there <laughs> and it's kind of a reminder i think that this is you know there's only a, a thin line between inside and outside and when you're inside it's incredibly grim and on the outside it's painted this kind of this this kind of color and uh, it's bright and uh, and you, you know for the people on the inside because of the 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 kind of the design it's like a court one of those courtyard prisons that they can bas- they can hear everything that comes in from the street. in fact, things get thrown over the walls from the street, and you know people have made escapes onto the street from the prison so it's it's quite active really, and I think that like for instance, when the carnival happens, the carnival parades one of the parade routes is past the prison, and so the prisoners must be able to sort of hear it all and not see it. it must be quite bizarre really like and and, and, and sad and uh, and obviously deeply frustrating <laughs> um, so I was attracted to the you know the idea of the prison for, for all sorts of reasons and, and not just not just for what it looked like I think I, the first paintings I made were just very simple sort of like just trying to sort of paint the volume because it's a substantial volume and then they became more um, articulated um, in some paintings yeah
0: in one of the pictures, you have make a make an explicit reference to Van Gogh's Yellow House, which is an obvious association. But it's to a certain degree in the sense that it's yellow, but but it's also obviously it spoke to me when I was looking at it about this about this sort of organic process of 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 making painting, and that it seemed to me that at certain at a certain point. You're just in the picture, and that that process takes over. If you like, whatever you might have started with, suddenly you're in the realms of art.
5: Yeah, you know, and the Van Gogh painting is is really interesting because there's just so much yellow in it. <laughs> and when you actually really look at it, it's not just the uh, not just the buildings are yellow. It's like the, the 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 street has become yellow, and the sky's obviously that cobalt blue. But uh, the 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 dominant color. Is this kind of this this yellow mix, mix of yellows, really? And um, I wanted to see what I could do with using something similar. You know, something very similar, something influenced by, and um, and see what it would be like on a bigger scale too, because the Van Gogh painting is, is actually very small, even though it's the painting has a lot of scale in itself. It's it's a small thing, and um, yeah. How do you negotiate that process of
0: bringing in? great painters of the past into a kind of in into your working process because of course t- there's a sort of danger in going there to a certain extent right uh, but also they are they are incredible sources of of knowledge and and information those paintings
5: yeah i suppose it's it's a kind of it's a bigger language of painting really and without being a complete you know copy i think that it's, you know I think it's alright to be influenced, really. There was a show many years ago at the Louvre I saw called... I can't remember the French title, but it translated in English to Copier Creator. And it was... Basically, it was an exhibition which just showed works made by artists going back to Delacroix. Um, uh, and then, I think, the most present artist was, at the time, Freud, but Matisse, obviously... Um, just copying works, uh, versions of works in the Louvre. My paintings aren't like that. They're not. Um, they're not copies or versions of, but they're definitely influenced by. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's valid.
0: You mentioned the Marsden Hartley reference, and it strikes me looking at your work that uh, there's a really interesting uh, contrast with his work in your language, in that uh, you know his language I find is quite it's, it's quite a tough, um, um, uh, uh, stilted almost language I find. Whereas yours is whereas yours is quite fluid. It, there isn't a great correspondence between the language, but there's a there's a fascinating dialogue
5: between his paintings and yours in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think the reasons why I admire him are not the things that I can really um, incorporate into my work. Um, I admire him because he 's one of those artists who you know whether he 's painting a cup or a wave or a body, uh, it all has the same kind of hand really and um, and almost the same handling, but it doesn't spoil it um, yeah, I admire that he could he could paint anything and it looks like a Mars and Hartley, you know a cloud or a chair. I think that I haven't got that that type of um, faci- that type of facility that he has and and you
0: t- you've spoken in the past about this sort of amazing experience that when you first arrived in Trinidad, it was an amazing uh, there was so much to take in, and it was a, such a different way of seeing in a way it, it seems to me from this body of work that it continues to
5: surprise you Is that fair? Yeah, I mean it does it does continue to surprise me and um, I don't know I don't know I don't know why it does so much more than um, elsewhere but um, that's where I am right now and I, I think um, see what happens I'm gonna make some well I've started making some kind of winter paintings again so <laughs> but I I'll probably be finishing them in Trinidad so it'll be interesting to see how they, they turn out but um, um, Trinidad itself still still does surprise me and um, I still think there's a lot to, uh, lot to learn from being there.
0: That's it. What you say there is interesting because I think sometimes one's perception of a painter is that in, if they are making a reference to place in, the, in their work they need to, be, they need to have that, that place near them Uh, when they complete the work or when they're making the work. But, of course, it is a studio practice, right? So can you tell me something about the gestation of work? And, 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 you know, I think I'm really interested in this idea of where it just becomes a purely painterly process as opposed to a process where where the observation of phenomena is still sort of an ongoing process, if you like.
5: Well, that that was the kind of strange thing for me, was that I'd always as you described had a studio practice and and the work that came out of the studio had often had very very little to do with you know the environs outside the studio door Um, I wasn't you know bringing back stuff into the studio from the streets of London and then I mean on occasion yes but hardly really in the scheme of things Um, Trinidad kind of changed that because yes I was being very much influenced by by there and um I think it would be quite strange um, you know making these these winter paintings there, because um, I don't really know anyone who does that everyone, everyone, every artist I know in Trinidad is somehow making some sort of reference to either their country or the, the landscape or the myths of you know it's all that those are the kind of themes it's very potent in that respect
0: it, it all, it sort of it all makes me think that ultimately painting is still providing you with a sort of uh an amazingly rich resource. I know there are some painters who you know they feel they have to be painters uh, some of them are very great painters but they the actual process of of making the work somehow is not an enjoyable one because it's it's kind of fraught I'm intrigued about your own uh feeling about being in the studio and making work in that in that way
5: well, I never find it Particularly easy, and um, the making of a body of work is always quite uh, fraught <laughs> um, because um, I don't know. I just you know, I always feel like I have to sort of invent a way to do it in a way, like to 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 complete it or to bring it to whatever is completion, whatever one you need, you decide is completion. Um, you know, I find that I'm very easily distracted. I always have been. Um, so it's it's uh, there's always other things to do. So I've never been one of these painters who's like in the studio like every single day. Um, I do, of course, for periods of time, like you know, six months at a time, I will be. But um, then I'll sort of slow down after after I finish some work. And yeah, so it's not like I have that. I, I don't have I don't have guilt about not going into the studio.
0: And, and and tell me how much of that, how much do you feel like the painting process happens in the head while you're away from the studio, as much as it happens there with the with brush in hand?
5: Well, maybe you can kind of kid yourself that it does, <laughs> but in a way, it has to be. There has to be an interaction, really. Um, there has to be something to react against. You have all sorts of ideas for things but until you actually start them and start engaging with them you don't really know whether they're good ideas or bad ideas
0: that's a good moment to end peter thank you so much <laughs> all right good peter doig paintings is at michael Werner gallery in london until the 16th of november and finally, this week, to coincide with this year's Freeze Fairs, a new book called Art London has just been published. It's written by Hetty Judah, an art critic at the Eye Paper, who also writes for the New York Times, Freeze, and The Guardian, amongst others. The book's billed as a guide to places, artists, and events, and Hetty came to our London studio to tell me about it. Hetty, in the introduction to the book, you say that had you written it 30 years ago, it would have been a much thinner volume. What do you mean by that?
6: Well, 30 years ago, there were very few commercial galleries in London and there were very few institutions in London that were interested in contemporary art at that point. I mean, there was still a lot of art being made, but there weren't many sites that I could have instructed people to go around visiting it.
0: <laughs> so in, in this book, you've you've gone about it sort of district by district. And one thing I was struck by reading the book was that actually... uh. We think of London as very, very centred on a couple of spaces, but actually, you, you you show that art has a very broad presence right across the city.
6: It it has a very broad presence at the moment, and I think it has for a very long time. I mean, since I don't know how long it was since Bridget Riley started up the Space Studios, but I think I mean it's something extraordinary, like fifty years, and that was really, I think, one of the significant moments where artists started, you know exploring these less seen parts of london they started moving into the post industrial sites around london so you had really important studios occupying the you know the docklands area areas in the east end and so i think there's always been this um this correlation between areas of london that are less fashionable and the spaces that then become available for artists to start using as studios and then to start uh, using for performances and happenings and then people progressively starting to show art. So you have, for example, you know, Matt's Gallery. I think, started in Martello Street, didn't it, Mm. 40 years ago in one of the space studios. Um, So whilst the commercial face of the art world has perhaps been focused on Cork Street, there has been art being made all over the place for years and years and years. And also these... um, Non-commercial spaces, so places like the Cascadie Centre that was up in Islington, the South London Gallery's been going for well over a century now I think. So there have been non-commercial spaces spread out over the city you know, as far back as I think there's been anybody able to document art happening in the city.
0: Is that the intention of the book really to in a way unravel the cliche of what London has has become in people's imagination as an art centre?
6: To an extent. I mean, I think I had a humbler ambition, which is simply to provide a primer for getting around the city. I've been actually away from the city for uh, well a decade at the start of this century. So I was away between 2000 and 2010. And I I left London at a point where, you know, it was just kind of the the YBAs were peaking, but the, the contemporary art world was very much focused around, you know, quite a small area in the East End. And then there was this kind of slightly stodgier section of the art world that was based around Cork Street. And in the decade that I was away, this unbelievable boom happened and Freeze London Fair started and there was suddenly this commercial international interest in London and I got back and it was unrecognisable. And there was suddenly this completely new landscape. There were all of these new galleries, some of which were homegrown, some of which were international galleries that had set down roots here. And there were also entities that had had roots in London for decades, but were suddenly manifesting themselves in new ways. So things like Autograph Gallery, which I walked past for years in the East End without realising that it was the Gallery of the Association of Black Photographers, without realising how important its history was, how important the founding artists were. So I really could have done with a guide like this, just to get some sense of who was what what was important why were they important what the history was how it all fitted together
0: one of the things that i mean this is being broadcast during freeze week you know so very many of the visitors to london will be spending a few days in airless tents in regent's park and in breakfasts and uh, and parties at galleries across london in a way if people pick up this book it will offer them an alternative itinerary a different way of of interpreting the sort of fabric of the landscape of art in London?
6: Yes, I mean, in a very practical sense, the way that I go round a lot of the spaces is to set little walking tours for myself. So I've clustered galleries by neighbourhood for that very reason so that you can go, well, you know, perhaps I could go to, you know, uh, Southwark or I could go to uh, Camden. And it would just give you a cluster of spaces that you could walk between maybe in an afternoon and you could go and see a couple of commercial spaces, a couple of institutions that you perhaps didn't know. And it's a very practical way to open up your knowledge of what's happening in London.
0: One of the things I really enjoy about dipping into the book is is that very many of the spaces I've not come across. And some of them I've loved and thought, why don't people know about this? For instance, there are some Jean Cocteau murals in the the Church of Notre Dame de France, which is just off Leicester Square, like in this unbelievably central London location. You've really sought out these sort of darker corners of London's art world.
6: I know, and we're all guilty of that. I used to go clubbing in the basement of that church when I was a teenager. They used to have a rave club that used to happen underneath. It was run by a bunch of travellers, so I'd go to Notre Dame Hall to lie on lie underneath parachute silks and things and i had no idea that these murals were you know a couple of meters above me i mean one of the things that's been really fun with this book is partly that i've had the the chance to put stories that i've been gathering for years into it but also that it's very anecdotal that every artist that i've interviewed while i've been working on the book has also had a story that they've passed on and some i've managed to get in there and some i haven't um, I think when I was talking to Phyllis de Barlow, she was talking about a Marcel Brodthar's performance he did on Speaker's Corner that, I, unfortunately, I couldn't find any documentation of. I would have loved to have put it in, but there were, you know, people love to share their stories about, you know, interesting spaces or extraordinary events that happened. So a lot of it's really just being kind of word of mouth, and it's just been incredibly fun to follow these rabbit holes through and discover these nightclubs and associations between different people making art and having these creative communities at different periods in history in London.
0: Given the broad scope of artists that are in London today, that must have been a fiendishly difficult choice knowing which artists would be the sort of focus of those little profiles or the, the, as you say, the anecdotes that you tell throughout the book
6: it wasn 't simply a kind of beauty contest or you know competition in terms of who was the most important artist. generally, I was looking for artists that had a very important connection to London. so there are maybe artists that are less that feature less highly on the international agenda, people like Sunil Gupta, who from a London perspective, is incredibly important. He was somebody that um, made work in response to a piece of legislation called clause twenty eight which was forbidding the um the description of um, homosexual relationships in education at that point. And he also was very important in the way that he um, documented and depicted loving. Um, gay relationships that were between people of different migrant groups in London or people from different backgrounds in London and something that was at that point totally invisible but he was really doing it as an artist he wasn't doing it as a documentarian and he was one of the founding members of um, Autograph and he was you know he's been very important in the history in the art history of London Um, and also somebody like Rashid Araeen has been present through so many different parts of London's art history he was one of the first artist that had a studio in space he was doing happenings out in the Docklands he's curated important exhibitions um, of uh, art looking at the kind of diasporic communities in London in both the Chisholm Hill and in the Hayward Gallery and he's also a great artist and what I didn't manage to get in is he's just got a restaurant that's opened as well but for the next edition I'll get that in as well
0: I mean, that's right, because I mean, like Irene's show, The Other Story, which is a now, you know, it's again, like with, with so many things from periods that aren't very recent, we've lost a lot of the documentation of these things. But it was a really important show which happened at the Hayward Gallery, I think at the end of the 80s. Yeah, I think
6: it was 89 from memory.
0: Yeah, so but that features. So in a way... There is a retelling of stories as well as introducing people to things. You are sort of in in a way reinvigorating and reinvestigating the history of London's art world, right?
6: Well, I mean, one of Rashid Araeen's, one of the things he talks about quite a lot is that there can't be a proper history of modernism without it being an inclusive history of modernism. And I kind of applied that tenet more broadly. To looking at the London art world, I didn't just want to produce an art history of London that kind of abided by the very kind of canonical stories of London art history. Of course, there are amazing figures like William Blake, like Hogarth, like Turner, that have, you can't do a history of London without including them. But I wanted to bring in all of the other thing, the all of the other um, stories that were happening around them at the same time, all of the stories in, on the margins, whether that was art being made by women or art being made in in communities that maybe had less access to the commercial world or kind of you know quirkier stories like the Tradiscant's Ark which um, was the foundation for the Ashmolean Museum um, so I wanted to make it a very broad and, and necessarily quite fragmented art history of London to give a sense of all of the different kinds of art making that were happening in any period.
0: And so where do you think Freeze fits into this ecosystem today? It's so dominant in the sort of art calendar, all our galleries organise their biggest shows to coincide with it. Do you think it makes what you're writing about in this book more fragile or does it somehow amplify it?
6: I think it's had quite an interesting impact on London as a city in which to make art I think it's placed quite a lot of pressure on artists to make work that's got a commercial aspect to it um but I think also the London as an incredibly expensive city to live in has probably done that done its, you know, plays a massive role in that as well um I mean it certainly put London on the international map as an art city in a way that it wasn't previously um I mean, I, I I was away during that transformative period, so I perhaps wasn't seeing firsthand what was happening, but it certainly, you know, changed the way that people think about uh, an artist's career, uh, about the possibility of opening a gallery. But then I think what was quite interesting is what then happened during the crash years, because in a way some of the galleries that are very successful right now, like Hollybush Gardens are the galleries that opened up during that really difficult economic period with no expectation of making any money, but really doing it because they adored the artists. They wanted to provide a space and a context for them to show their work. So I think there possibly was quite a dangerous period where people thought, yeah, we can make loads of money out of art, and Freeze showed people the route by which suddenly it looked kind of glamorous and full of that, that commercial potential. Uh, so I think there's been a corrective since then.
0: But in a way, what you're alluding to is the fact that, to a certain extent, London is now an art world of many art worlds, isn't it? I mean, Hollybush Gardens are, to an extent, a kind of freezy gallery. Mm. But there seems to be an ecosystem that operates independently of that sort of blue chip, shiny, bauble world that that many of the galleries that we will see in freeze are definitely at the heart of
6: yes i mean there are still a surprisingly large number of artist run spaces in london and i was very very heartened by that because i would have thought it was quite difficult quite a few of them are attached to studio complexes which mean that they often move around as buildings you know get bought up for development but there you know there are really interesting little artist-run spaces. I mean, I think, you know, um, Lindsay Mendick and Paloma Proudfoot have recently opened up a little space in their studio called Proudick. There's Kingsgate Project Space that's near me in Kilburn. So if you hunt for them, there are these less commercial spaces.
0: There's a perception that perhaps Britain was rather an isolated nation in terms of its art until relatively recently. Is that something you, you can examine in the book?
6: Well there is an underlying narrative that really goes back through the centuries in the book which is looking at this incredibly cosmopolitan aspect of art in London in fact because we didn't historically have these great art schools these amazing academies that were um you know giving people the the, the skills they needed to be royal painters and so really going back to you know somebody like Holbein with King Henry VIII and all of the court painters that came after them when I mean, you think of people like Van Dyke, who was so important in the way that we now imagine the reign of Charles I. Um, so we've always really welcomed these great talents from continental Europe and then further afield gradually as the centuries went on. So in fact, the London art world has, you know, has been one that's quite open. I mean, I think there were quite a few different, um, you know, there were Swiss artists and Italian artists and French artists amongst the founder members of the Royal Academy, for example. And then in the last century, there have, of course, been waves and waves of migration coming into London that have really been incredibly important for the London art world. I mean, you know, Lucian Freud came from Germany, as did Frank Auerbach. Um, And so I don't think we can think of the London art world as being a particularly British art world in many ways.
0: Well, Hetty, thank you very much for coming in.
6: Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Ben.
0: Hetty Judah's Art London is published by ACC Art Books and priced £15, and it's out now. And that's it for this Freeze special. If you're at the Freeze Art Fairs, do pick up our daily newsletters for all the latest news, and you can also read all the latest on our website at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS. You can find that at the App Store on the website you can find the subscription to suit you so that you can read the art newspaper across multiple platforms while there you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page and do check out our new newsletter called Market Eye with comment and analysis every month from our market experts on both sides of the Atlantic the art newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahouska Amy Dawson and David Clack and David also does the editing Big thanks to Melanie, to Mark, to Weiwei, to Peter and to Hetty, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.